Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you will, and open to the book of Genesis and chapter 8. Today we're finishing up our study uh, series here in Genesis chapters 4 through 9. And next week we'll begin a new series looking at the Lord's Prayer. Genesis chapter 8. Last week we were in chapters 6 and 7. And we saw there in chapter 6 and 7 that a world that was so filled with wickedness that God sent a devastating judgment upon them. A judgment such that Peter writes of it in 2 Peter 3. He says, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. It was wiped off the face of the earth. God erased the world that then was. So much really that we have no real trace of it. We have only really what God says about it here in Genesis to inform us of what that world was like. In chapter 7 and verse 23, we read that uh, it says of every living thing, it says they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. That was the end of last chapter, chapter 7. Against that backdrop of God's judgment, against the wiping out and the erasing of the world that was, the grace of God is on full display as we come here into Genesis chapters 8 and 9. We're covering a lot of material and a lot of verses this morning, so I'm not going to get to read it all. I love to read the whole passage, but I encourage you to go through it and read it. We'll, we'll try to get the, the main meat. We're, we're focusing this morning really just on four things in the limited time we have out of the many things there are to look at here, but four things, particularly four ways that God's grace shows up in these two chapters. As chapter 8 opens, the flood we saw began in chapter 7. And it described there as we just read that everything was blotted out from the face of the earth. Only Noah was left. And we pick up here in Genesis chapter 8 and in verse 1. By the way, there's been so far 40 days and 40 nights of unrelenting rain and of torrents of water coming up from the deep. It says from the fountains of the deep, from the, uh, the depths of the earth. 40 days of rising waters. And now here, verse 1 of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God's grace first shows up in these chapters by the fact that God remembers. And I wonder this morning, have any of you ever felt forgotten by God? Has there been a time in your life that's been so dark, so difficult, where you've, you've thought just maybe God has forgotten all about you? Abandoned you? I dare say that many, if not most of us, have had some time like that in our life. 
want you to understand that's not foreign to godly people. If you turn to the book of Psalms and go through, you'll find that that's a big theme, a recurring theme through the book of Psalms. David, for example, in Psalm 13.1 says, How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? And as we come here to this passage and we read, but God remembered Noah. It makes us legitimately ask the question, is this saying that Noah was forgotten by God? Is our worst fear really true? That God sometimes does forget us? Is it saying that this is like cookies at my house? I'd say, you know, one out of two or three batches of cookies that go into our oven. You know, they're they're cooking and you're doing stuff and all of a sudden you have that uh uh-oh moment. (laughs) Or you smell something and you realize, "Uh uh-oh! And you go running in there and you follow the smoke and there they are, just those little charred black discs on the pan. There's no cookies really left. You've been there. Is that what's happening here? That God is, He remembers Noah. He's, uh oh! Noah! Forgot all about them! Where are they? Where did they drift off to? Let's see, let's find them. Is that what it means? No, not at all. When the Bible says that God remembers someone, it's not saying that He forgot them. It's saying that He is faithful to them in His grace. It's a contrast here. Really, you know that these chapter divisions that are in our Bibles where we move from chapter 7 to chapter 8, you know those aren't part of the original text. Matter of fact, in Genesis, we talked about this back in the beginning last fall. We we did the first few chapters. The chapter divisions in Genesis are where it says, now these are the generations of, and that's the chapter divisions in the book. So really, the way this reads is it says, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days, but God remembered Noah. What it's saying that in contrast to the world that has been washed off the face of planet earth, which has been erased as it were from memory, In contrast to that, God remembered Noah. All along, Noah has been in the very forefront of of God's attention and thoughts. God remembers Noah means God has cared for him all through these 40 days when God shut the door to the ark and He sealed them in. God didn't, you know... Close it and forget it, like some of the ads for some of those cooking things on TV. You know, you just set it and forget it. No, he means he paid attention all the way along. Interestingly enough, though, we have no record in the text that from the moment that God closed them in until the flood is over and God opens the door, For them to leave, we have no record that God ever says anything else to Noah. It's very likely, I say very probable, 
that God never said anything else to them during their time on the ark. Now that's just my speculation, but if that's true, I say I have a feeling there were some, probably quite a lot of times where Noah and his family felt very alone. And at times they may have felt forgotten by God. As the storm is raging outside the ark, the thunder is rumbling, thundering, the waves are crashing, the ark is turning and tossing, creaking and groaning. I can imagine they are wondering, has God forgotten us? Will this box hold together? (laughs) Will we survive this storm? While God always remembered and cared for them through the flood, it doesn't mean that they never felt alone. May I say that that's true in our lives as well. When the storms of life hit hard, we need to learn from this Remember that we often feel alone, but it does not mean we are alone. The Bible never tells us that God keeps His children from going through storms or going through trials. But the Bible tells us that God promises that He never leaves His children alone. In Isaiah, God says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You go to many other passages. One of my favorites is Jesus. Just before He left, ascended to heaven. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, I am with you always. To the, and I like one translation, very end of the age. No matter how overwhelming our circumstances seem to be, no matter how deep the pit it feels we are in, no matter how big the storm that is raging around us, God's grace never leaves us alone. He is always with us. Verse 2, Actually, picking up in verse 1. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. I can't help but think that as Moses writes this, he's actually taking us back to Genesis chapter 1 as the, the world is covered by water, and it says this, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. I think the wind here, maybe this blowing, is actually the Spirit of God going over the earth. The water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Recall we saw last week the flood began in the second month now he says after 40 days of the, of the rains, of the floods rising, God stops the rain. He shuts off the underground faucets as it were and the water begins receding. 
Still overall, the, the text tells us here, it was 150 days, roughly five months, that the waters prevailed, that the waters covered all of the land. Even after the flood stopped rising, 150 days before the water starts to come down to the top of the surface of the land. At that point, the Bible says the ark comes to rest in the mountains of Ararat. Still, though, it was another 150 days, another five months after that, before the waters had fully receded from the land into the oceans and wherever God is storing them. Then it was still, our text says, a little over two more months, 70 days, all total just over a year since the flood started before it's time to disembark. I imagine that that was a very, very long year. I'm sure with all the terrors of the storm riding out that storm, the flood, dealing then, that's on the outside, then dealing with all the animals on the inside and all that that involved and caring for them and dealing with them. Then imagining and wondering and concerned about what they are going to face whenever they get out of this, what's the world going to be like having been destroyed by flood for a year? If all of that's not enough, we can all think of what would it have been like to simply be living together with your family in one place for over a year. If you've ever had a road trip with your family for a week or two, you can kind of get the picture of what that might be like. If I have to pull this ark over one more time... No. <laughs> Couldn't say that. <laughs> no place to go. Then God said to Noah, verse 15, Go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Did you notice the repetition there? Lists again. We noticed last week, if you were here, that in chapters 6 and 7, there were four lists, four times that God, through Moses, took the time to list out everybody that went on the ark. There's Noah. There's Noah's wife. There's Shem. There's Ham. There's Japheth, his sons, and their wives. And then there's all the animals, all the birds that fly, and all the beasts of the field, and everything that creeps on the ground. And we had that four times last week, loading the ark and riding in the ark. And we thought we were done with those lists and we come here and now twice in two verses He gives us two more lists again repeating the same thing. Noah comes off the ark and Noah's wife and Noah's sons and their wives and their... And it, what does, what's this guy's problem? Why is he so hung up on all these lists? And I say God is making a point for us. 
The emphasis is that while, as we saw as we at the end of the chapter before, in chapter 7, that everything and everyone on the earth, every living thing, was wiped out, destroyed, erased, save those in the ark. The emphasis, while everything, emphasis is while everything outside the ark perished, God kept careful account. And everyone and everything that went into the ark was saved. And everyone and everything that went into the ark came out of the ark. And you almost get the picture that what God has been doing all along is, Noah, here's the list I want you to take. And he steps through the list. And now it's time to load the ark. And you will take it. And now they're all on board. Let's check the list. And now you're riding through the storm. Let's make sure. Is everybody still on board? Yep, we're all here. And now they're coming off. No, Noah, take everybody off. Here's the list. And now they all come off and we're checking them off. Why is God going to all that trouble? To let us know that He pays attention. His grace is displayed is that He, that he is faithful to keep and to deliver on the promise that He made to Noah back in chapter 6 when God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, with your family. We will spare you. You will be saved. Listen to me. They have just endured the greatest disaster to ever befall earth. It came and God's people, those whom God said He would protect, they emerged unscathed. God remembers us in our troubles. God also delivers us. God will judge man's sin, the Bible tells us, but in His grace He will also rescue and preserve everyone who trusts in Him. The Apostle Peter explains this truth using Noah and his family as an example. In 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 5, he says, If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Let's skip down to verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteousness under punishment until the day of judgment. See, if God could do that for Noah, His point is, He can do that for us. And therein is good news. The same God who remembered Noah is the same God who remembers you. The same God who delivered Noah is the same God who delivers you. Again, the Bible is clear. God doesn't promise to keep us as His children, as His people. doesn't promise to keep us from going through troubles. doesn't promise to keep us from sickness, nor from suffering, nor from persecution. But He does promise, Romans 8.28, that He accomplishes and works good through them. And He does not promise that He will deliver us from death, but He promises that He will deliver us through death into His eternal glory. Which is why the same David who wrote, as we read from Psalm 13:1 earlier, How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? is the same God who writes in Psalm... The same David who writes in Psalm 23 of God, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Whatever trial, whatever it is that you are going through, and many of you are going through many trials, deep valleys, what we can be assured of is that God remembers us. He is with us. And He will deliver us. Not always from the trial, but He always delivers us through it. That reality has been the comfort. It has been the assurance. It has been the anchor. It has been the confidence. It has been the hope of the saints through the ages. So many passages we could do. I just one that's my fav- one of my favorites. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, "I am the resurrection and the life." Whoever believes in Me, though He die, and most of us will, yet shall He live. The only way we will not die is that Jesus comes back first. Maybe that will be today. Moving on to chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those words sound kind of familiar because we just read them a few moments ago back in chapter 8 and verse 17 when they were disembarking from the ark. But they also sound familiar if, you've, if you're familiar with, with Genesis chapter 1 or if you were here last fall as we were going through Genesis chapter 1. Those are the very words that God speaks to Adam and Eve right after He creates them and He says, Be fruitful multiply, fill the earth. In fact, in this verse and in the next few verses, now that God has erased the former world, what we see is God's grace as God restores mankind. God is beginning over with Noah and his family. And so in these verses, He restates, He reinstitutes, the creation mandate, the instructions that He gave to Adam and to Eve when He created them with a few modifications. While God gives this mandate, it is a blessing. It is God's grace that He is entrusting once again to man. Here's what I want you to do. They have messed it up so badly, God wiped it out. And God says, I'm giving you another opportunity. God restores man to his mission. Be fruitful, be productive, multiply, fill the earth. It's a gracious gift from God. Note he says when he says God says he blessed them. It's a blessing. Secondly, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Again, going back to Genesis chapter 1, you'll recall that after God created Adam and Eve, He said that man was to, in verse 28 of chapter 1, that man was to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Implied in this 
command here is that that rule continues, but God has added something to it, something different. Now God says, they, the animals, the creation is afraid of you. They are wary of you. Whatever the relationship was between man and animals before the flood, God is saying it's different now. They're no longer your buddies necessarily. Even man's best friend is wary at times. We have a little puppy at my house right now. My daughter's puppy spent the week at our house while they were out of town. And uh, she lived with us for a little while a few months ago, this little puppy. But as good of friends as that little puppy and I are, when I reach down to pet her, you know what she does? And she plays this game. And we go all the way around the house. And I'm trying to pet her and she's keeping back it up. And she... Because there's still a little, hmm, can you be trusted? Something has changed in man's relationship with the animals. There's fear, suspicion. The reason likely has to do with what comes next. Third thing that God restores is man's food in verse 3 and 4. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Back in Genesis chapter 1, you recall God said to Adam and Eve, I give you every green plant for food. You can eat, eat, eat to your heart's content. At that time though, it was only plants. Now God says something different. Meat has been added to the menu. No wonder animals are a little wary. Apparently before the flood, mankind were all vegetarians. They were all vegans. Well, or at least they were supposed to be. We really don't know what they did. But all God had told them they could eat were the vegetables, the the, the plant life. Now God says for some reason that's changed. We can eat steak and chicken and bacon. And that makes me smile. Yes. I'm glad I live in the post-flood world. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe plants tasted better before the flood. Maybe they tasted like bacon. I don't know. But, just as in the pre-flood world, the original creation, there was a restriction on the food. You can eat of any of the plants except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God here imposes a restriction You can eat meat, you can eat of any of the animals, but, he says, you can eat their meat, but not their blood. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, the blood. When you go to eat an animal, you are to kill it and drain the blood. You are to butcher it, in essence. A fourth thing that God restores here in in this new world to man. He restores to man his duty. Verse 5, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. 
In essence, for man's duty, what he says is our duty is to respect human life. The reasoning is because man is made in God's image. You recall again, going back to Genesis chapter 1, before God even creates man, God says, let us create man in our image after our likeness. Some people have said that after the fall of man that the image of God was lost. I mean, I say this is proof if you ever need it from Scripture, it's right here. Still, not only after the fall, but after the flood, God looks to man and says, man is made in my image. Every man, woman, child is created in the image of God and that's behind everything that is said here. Human life is special. It is sacred. We are different from the animals. We are made in God's image. Because of that, God says, He will require a reckoning and accounting. He will hold both animal and man accountable for the killing of man. This is why, among other things as believers, we cannot condone abortion. It's the taking of a human life. It's why as believers in Christ, every person, they have value. It's why we are called upon to serve the least of these, those who are the downtrodden, the oppressed, the poor, the needy. We are called upon to value them because they are valuable. They are created in God's image. The image of God was marred in the fall. None of us does a great job of reflecting the image of God, but we are all made in His image. It's also then the basis, that basis of, of the value of man made in the image of God is why life is sacred and why He says here that whoever murders a person forfeits their own life. And God says, I will hold them accountable. But more than that, He says, they are to be put to death by man. Implied in that from the very earliest of uh, even Jewish commentators, the understanding that this was God's first uh, mandate to create social order. A way of social justice where, where when someone commits murder, there is justice served, that there's there are those who come together to make sure that the one who, who committed this vile act of murder receives the due punishment that they are put to death. So God has restored man in His mission, in His rule, in His diet, His food, and in His duty. And God's grace has showed up by remembering his grace has showed up by delivering. His grace has showed up by restoring. And lastly, in the last part of chapter 9, God's grace shows up in His promises. Verse 8, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the field, excuse me, beast of the earth with you, and as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God makes a covenant, a contract 
with Noah, and not only with Noah, but with his family, not only with his family, but with his descendants, not only with his descendants, but he says with every living creature on earth. And he says, never again will I destroy the earth in a flood. No more, and I say floods there, no more worldwide floods. By the way, for those, and there are many unfortunately in our day and time, who want to say that the flood was local, not universal. And this promise right here is the linchpin that says absolutely it was global, universal flood, global all over the earth. Otherwise, this promise has no meaning. And not only does it have no meaning, it has failed. So many floods have been devastating locally, regionally. The flood of Noah was a worldwide flood. And this promise is that there will never again be a worldwide flood. God will not destroy the earth in a flood. That was really good news to them. It's hard for you and I to imagine, but if you were Noah or Mrs. Noah or one of the boys or their wives, what would you think the next time you hear a little thunder? Next time you see a flash of lightning or some clouds get a little thick. <laughs> this is God saying, folks, you can relax. I'm not going to destroy, destroy the earth again in a flood. It won't happen. God gives a sign that this will be, this promise will never be forgotten. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. As long as there is a rainbow in the sky, you can be confident that I'm not going to send a worldwide flood again. It appears here that the rainbow was a brand new phenomenon. It is something that appeared after the flood that hadn't been there before. I think it's another indication that as we noted if you were around back last fall we were in chapter 2 and it said that, that uh, it had not rained upon the earth for the Lord God did not send rain. He, um, but a mist came up from the earth and watered the whole ground and there's speculation that it never rained on the earth up until the flood. That would make sense if there had never been a rainbow before that there had never been rain because rain and sunshine kind of produce rainbows. Sadly, our current culture has chosen the rainbow as their symbol to celebrate homosexuality, but I say, folks, don't let that stop us from appreciating and glorying in the wonder of the rainbow. Not only its beauty, most especially the reminder that God has made a promise, a guarantee, will never again destroy the earth in a flood. The last thing I want to notice about this, though, is that there's some startling grace. There's some surprising things here. I read the covenant here in chapter 9, but actually God makes the promise back in chapter 8. We skipped over those verses, and I want to go back there for just a moment to chapter 8 and verse 21. As Noah and, the, and his family and the animals came off the ark, God says in verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. There's the promise from chapter 9 said in chapter 8, but a few things different. One thing that it sounds like if you read it, it sounds like, wait a minute, life on earth, conditions on earth are going to keep going like they will and they'll never cease. Is that what it's saying? Is that earth and life on earth as we know it is going to be kind of eternal? It'll keep on going, never be wiped out? And mm -mm. First of all, verse 22 doesn't promise that the earth will continue forever. Read it carefully. It says, while the earth remains. What that actually implies is that one day it won't. Okay? While the earth remains, these things, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat and summer and winter, in other words, seasons, and day and night are going to keep going. So those things are going to remain constant. Okay, let me throw one more thing in here just to make it a little more unsettling. About what is this trying to say? Peter over in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3 says this, By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, that's our world here, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He's saying this world that we live in is going to be destroyed by fire. Well, in chapter 9, he says, I will never again destroy the world by flood. And so we go, well, okay. And a lot of commentators and a lot of things I read, that's just kind of, well, that's how it is. He'll never destroy it by flood, but he's going to destroy it again by fire. My problem was that just didn't set well with me the last few weeks as I've been studying this. I've been wrestling with it. What it sounds a lot to me like is the big bully guy, and I've, I've had encounters with a few of those in my lifetime, the big bully guy punching you in the face. And after a little bit, he stops. He says, I promise I won't hit you anymore. And he starts kicking you. Kept my promise. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not any better off. God's promising He's not going to destroy the earth by, by flood, but now He's going to come and wipe everything out by fire? It doesn't leave us necessarily feeling very comfortable. Maybe it's not supposed to. But I have a feeling that God means what He says. And as I came back here to chapter 8, and I read the promise in chapter 8 in verse 21, and let's look at it again, where He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Does he say by flood there? Nobody's answering. The answer is no. You don't see flood there mentioned anywhere. A lot of folks say, well, that's implied because he says it in chapter 9. But I have a feeling God doesn't just imply things that don't make sense. I think God, when He says something, He means it. God says He's not going to wipe out every living creature again. And I think He means it. So how do you put all that together? Well, let me do my best little shot. And this is my put-together stuff. It's not clearly outlined in Scripture for us how that this is what He means, but I think it's right. Check it out. 
When we go to the end of the book, to the end of the story, Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Revelation chapter 19 tells us that Jesus returns to earth there in chapter 19 in great power and glory, coming with the host of heaven, the armies of heaven behind Him. And I think, by the way, that we're going to be there. But that's another story. He comes to to earth. He destroys His enemies. He deposes the Antichrist. And He is sent to the lake of fire. He binds Satan. And He establishes His kingdom on earth in Revelation chapter 20 for a thousand years, a millennium. After the kingdom, after the millennium, after that thousand years, Revelation chapter 20 verse 11, it goes on to say that then there is the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers through all the ages are resurrected and they stand before Christ. And there they must account and they give account The Bible says that anyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, anyone who did not believe in Jesus Christ, they are condemned to the lake of fire, to hell. Revelation chapter 20 closes. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Peter says that this earth is going to be destroyed by fire. When does that happen? Right there. After all the unbelievers have been judged. In other words, it seems to me that that no one is wiped out when God does away with this earth. He ushers out the old and brings in the new. God keeps His promise. He never destroys all life again. But He does destroy this earth and make a new one. I think God means what He says. Back to our text as I wrap it up. In the meantime, between now and then, God says what's going to happen. Verse 22, While the earth remains, as long as this world is still here, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. The world is going to keep spinning and turning. Things are going to go on. Life will go on. Seasons will go on. Days and nights will go on. God gives us the stability on earth for our care and for our enjoyment. But Peter tells us that many people are going to observe this. They're going to observe the seasons, the days, and the times, and they're going to say, they're going to miss the meaning. They're going to use the reality of what they see instead to make fun of the idea that Jesus will ever return. And so Peter writes, they will say, where is this promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning until now. Long as life has been going on, everything just goes on like it always does and it always will. You think Jesus is coming back. That will never happen. There is no Jesus. There is no judgment. Ain't going to happen. Peter goes on to say that to do this, in the next verse, and we looked at these verses a few weeks ago, they will deliberately ignore that God once sent 
a flood and destroyed the world that was as a warning that one day a final judgment is coming. Peter then points out the real reason for God's delay in Jesus' return. He says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some people count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is delaying one more day, one more week, one more month, using this time every day, every hour of it to proclaim the message of His saving grace in Christ Jesus to give more people opportunity. He has been raising up a people from every generation, people from every tribe and every tongue and nation, as Revelation tells us, Revelation 4, who will be there in heaven to give praise to God for His great grace. But one day, as the next verse in Peter, right after this, verse 3.10, one day says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Time will run out. And the significance of everything we have read and looked at this morning comes. There's a day of judgment coming. God has made a way of rescue for anyone and everyone who will believe. The ark that was a real event with real people that happened was not only a real event in the past, but it was a picture of the rescue that was coming to Jesus. And the Bible says today is the day of salvation. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. We will either die or one day we will those who don't die will meet the return of Jesus Christ personally. And time is run out. The question is, are you trusting Jesus as your Savior? And if not, that's His invitation to you. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the whole point of this message is to remind us that there's a real judgment. There's a real Savior. He's given to us the mission to carry the good news of Jesus to a world where so many have yet to hear. What are we going to do with the time we have? Father, we thank You for this reminder. We've seen so much in these chapters. How challenging it is to us as we realize the reality that just as sure as the world that once was perished and there was judgment, there is judgment coming one day. Father, may we take seriously the words of Jesus when He said, You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. May we carry the good news of rescue in Jesus. And it's His name we ask.